Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, here we are in the third week of Lent, and I hope this season has been meaningful for you. As we observe this season, we recognize that this season is a season of preparation. Uh, It's a way in which we can intentionally lead into this tension that we know Christ has victory over the cross and over death through his resurrection. And yet we recognize our need for a savior still. We live in that tension, don't we, of the already not yet. And so during this season, we intentionally engage in practices of confession, of just mindfulness of our mortality, but also in fasting and giving ways that we can intentionally live in to our participation with the kingdom. And our lectionary passages have been really leading us on a cool um, path these last few weeks. One thing that I notice about these, especially the, the gospel passages from the lectionary, these are all about encounters. These are encounters that people are having with Christ. And that then changes, it opens a paradigm, it shifts things. Here, this third Sunday, we'll be again looking at another encounter Last week, of course, we had the encounter with Nicodemus, right, in which he came and visited Jesus in the dark of night and had this interaction. Nicodemus, of course, was this Pharisee, a religious leader, and therefore should have been antagonistic towards Jesus and his claims because the Pharisees were not accepting Jesus as Messiah, but something different was happening in Nicodemus. God was at work. There was something going on in his, in his heart, and his life. He was recognizing that there's no way you could be doing these things unless God was in you. You see, God was opening a way in Nicodemus in his heart to be reborn of spirit and water. To have his life refo- reformed and refocused, really, on devotion of Jesus. It took Nicodemus a minute. You know, he didn't quite get there that first night. Of course, we saw a couple chapters later in chapter seven when Nicodemus does stand up for Jesus when he's being grilled again by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And as he does so, he risks his reputation. He risks his status. And then we finally see Nicodemus come full circle in chapter 19 when at the crucifixion and after the crucifixion, he and Joseph take the body. Nicodemus supplies the extravagant uh, oils and anointing to bury Jesus' body, a sign of public display and worship and devotion. You know, we know, I'm kind of giving a recap because it helps us into where we're going today. We know Nicodemus was a respected and established leader before these encounters, and there's no reason to assume that that changed. But we can be confident that the focus of his teaching, the purpose of his work dramatically changed. You know, we don't have explicit evidence or stories to support this, but I'd like to imagine 
that Nicodemus and answering his call to being one of his followers, that he played an important role in the establishment of the early church, especially among the Jews. Jesus was not just calling a man to rebirth of spirit and water, but he was calling him to be a leader, a father of a movement that has forever changed the world. In the next chapter over, in John chapter 4, we have another encounter between Jesus, but with an altogether different character, the Samaritan woman at the well. Some of you are familiar with this story. And the contrast between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman is striking. Given the fact that they appear one after another in the gospel story, I think there's something that we should be noticing in this contrast and all of its detail. You see, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a religious insider among the Jews, at least. He was a leader. He was a man. He was given a name that we have in scripture. But he comes to Jesus by night. And here, this woman at the well is a Samaritan, a religious and social and political outsider, according to the Jews. She's a woman. And of course, in our scripture account, we don't know her name. She's not given a name. But she meets Jesus in the full daylight, in the light. And like Nicodemus, but maybe in her own way, she becomes a leader and a mother to an entirely new part of this movement that has forever changed the world. Let's take a look at this passage. It's a bit of a longer passage. I don't mind kind of reading a longer passage, especially in these stories, because they do so much of the work for us. But before we dive into John chapter 4, let's pray. Living God, through the reading of the scripture, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we hear for ourselves this good news and believe because of your word that Jesus Christ is Savior of all the world. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 4. We'll be starting in verse 3, and we'll be going through verse 26. It'll be on the screens for you. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria on the way. Okay, I'm not going to be stopping every two verses, but I do have to stop real quickly <laughs> because I think we need to take a look at this. This is really important because remember last week during the encounter with Nicodemus, we had the world famous John 3.16, right? For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It didn't stop there. Jesus continued. He said, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. You see, the kingdom of God has one purpose. It has a purpose, to bring redemption and life to the entire world, to all creation, to all of its inhabitants. That is the purpose of the kingdom, to bring life and restoration. And of course, Nicodemus was a Jew and had a very specific sphere of influence, but Notice where Jesus is traveling in this passage. He had to go through Samaria. It is geographically true. If you wanted to go uh, 
if he wanted to get to Galilee from where he was, that he had to go through Samaria. But more importantly, it sets up a theological necessity for this journey. Why did he have to go get to Galilee? Jesus' stop in this, in this town that we'll be hearing will result in a new witness that God is with us. This witness then becomes a vital agent in fulfilling the claim for God so loved the world. Indeed, it was necessary for Jesus to pass through Samaria to reach this woman who it would become known is a vital witness to God's revelation in the world. Okay, so that's just the first two verses. Let's continue. <laughs> Eventually, he came to a Samaritan village named Sychar, near the field that Jacob had gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at this time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for the Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his son and his sons and his animals enjoyed. And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks of this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, give me this water. I love that. There's like no suspicion. She's like all in. Good, let me have it. Please, sir, said the woman, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, she replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands. And you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You, speak, you certainly have spoken the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? I love the diversion. Like, okay, we're talking about my infidelity. Let's talk about theology real quick. Let me distract you, Jesus. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or, or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he's going to explain everything. In other words, she's kind of not buying it, right? Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. In the Greek, really what it says is Jesus told her, I am. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's a lot in there, and there's a lot we could digest. At first glance, the woman whom Jesus meets at the well in Sychar, you know, could not be any more different than Nicodemus. That's the kind of first thing that was standing out to me. This woman we meet stands as a contrast to Nicodemus, but in her own right, she's about to play an incredibly important role in the work of the kingdom. We'll dive into that in a bit, but let's consider a couple things that's going on here in the story. First, the Jews, to the Jews, Samaritans were outsiders. Not just outsiders, but they were like really, really, really outsiders. They were scorned. A brief snapshot of the history. The Samaritans are close cousins, really, to the Jews. We hear their story in First and Second Kings, but here's you know, kind of the highlights. Israel, at one point, was unified and was invaded by Assyria. And as occupying nations do, the Assyrians began to intermarry with people that they conquered in order to kind of mitigate the chance that they would be a threat in the future. Like, let's not genocide you, but let's just intermarry you and make you go away. The intermarried Jews and their children then began to adopt the pagan worship practices of the Assyrians, ultimately leading to this split from their Jewish identification. This new group of people, known as the Samaritans, retained study of the Torah and continued the practice of offering sacrifices to atone for sin, but they were not doing this in the Jewish temple, obviously. They established their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So that's kind of this, like, why do you say we can only worship there and that kind of thing? To the Jews, the Samaritans represented the slander of foreign nations. They represented this taint of paganism upon all that the Jews held most dear. But does Jesus seem very scandalized by this woman? He doesn't even really feel defensive, does he? To make matters even more complex, this particular Samaritan appears to be an outsider even among her own people. No one would choose to draw water from the well. This is hard work in the heat of the midday. Also, like gathering and drawing well, water from the well in the morning was like this social highlight for many of the women of the day. It was a time to catch up on one another's lives and share stories and hear how life is going. And yet, we see this woman alone and at midday. Is she so much of an outsider that she is considered socially deviant, perhaps, from her community? I mean, Jesus mentions her infidelities. 
Probably. Does she feel ostracized or stigmatized by her society? Probably. But you know what? Sometimes being an outsider to the society around you, sometimes that can feel kind of good. Some of us perhaps even wear that as a badge of honor from time to time, right? We might have a tendency to nurse that feeling. Me against the world, that kind of thing. And that can become just a, another trick that the enemy tries to play on us because, of course, we know that our lives are not meant to be lived in isolation, but they're, in, they're meant to be lived in community with one another in open relationship and, and openness with friends and family and God and neighbor. So this idea of the Samaritan being ostracized, even among her own people, was kind of really standing out to me. And like, you can feel a bit of a defensiveness. Like, you're a Jew, why are you even talking to me? You know what I mean? It reminded me of a poem by Emily Dickinson. I think it's in your worship folder. It's, the poem is called, I'm Nobody, Who Are You? And it goes like this, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. But don't tell, they'll advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog. To tell one's name, the live long June, to an admiring bog. <laughs> for, for Emily Dickinson, the idea of being public, a public somebody, was a gloomy prospect. But she may have been the exception. I think this is something that the Lord wants to work in us on. Most people want to avoid the pain of being nobodies. They want to be recognized and cherished as people who matter. Jesus is bringing good news to anyone who's ever felt the humiliation of being stigmatized by your peers. For anyone who's ever experienced the pain of feeling like an outsider, feeling like a nobody, Jesus goes way out of his way to meet exactly you. He refuses to be scandalized by what you've experienced. On the contrary, for the outsider, his portion of compassion and mercy seems doubled or tripled. He engages to this woman, he takes her seriously. He spends several days in her village, we'll find out in the verses to come. To this woman and her community, their welfare, they matter to Jesus. And it doesn't matter that to his people, that these are the outsiders. Jesus is going beyond. Jesus shows us that his kingdom, that in his kingdom, there's no such thing as an outsider. That all are welcome. And that's good news. That's good news for all of us here today. 
because likely, I don't know that any of you have Jewish heritage. Do you? Maybe. Maybe. This is good news. But it should also be challenging for us. It should be challenging for us. Because in most regards, the modern church in America is more like the Pharisaical Jews than like the Samaritans. Have you ever noticed that Christians, uh, the Christian church can be a pretty judgy place? <laughs> Whoa, the first amen. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, sometimes we're a beautiful, we're a beautiful church. We do our best. But yeah, I think we've all experienced that at times, even among the people that we love the most. But according to Jesus, the nobodies that we might judge or scorn are somebodies in his eyes. Who are the nobodies? Who are the people that maybe in just your sphere of influence, your path, your travels, your family, your workplace? Who are these strangers? What group or segment of our society just kind of rubs you the wrong way? Even these, Jesus has open welcoming arms for. Hear the warning. Hear the warning that our attempts to draw, draw boundaries around who the community of faith is and is not, that those boundaries tend to be a little narrow. We often prefer to leave the nobodies out because they're, it's uncomfortable. It makes us ask questions that are hard, and I get that. But here is Jesus in the heat of the day, spending time gently, gently working with this woman. He welcomes all. He welcomes all not only into life, but into discipleship. And discipleship is an important part because that means living your life out together, going through the work of life together. Jesus welcomes people who are just starting on their faith journey as well. You know, this is another characteristic we notice about this woman that she is a newcomer to faith. As a matter of fact, we're watching it happen right before our eyes in this story. As the conversation progresses, she's taking steps. And then she takes this big leap. Give me this water. And look at how Jesus models. We've talked about this, but how he models his interactions. He's patient. His willingness to explain his metaphors, to stay in the conversation is a stark contrast to what we saw last week with Nicodemus in chapter three, where Jesus seemed to be maybe a little bit, a little bit sharp, a little snarky at times even, like you're a religious leader, you should know these things, right? But Jesus doesn't get snarky with this woman. He doesn't chastise her for her rebuttals because she's pushing back. He doesn't get frustrated with her. As a matter of fact, it seems that this is when the mercy and patience increases. Instead of chastising her, he nurtures her, nudges her along. Jesus is kind, patient, and generous. 
And yes, he's bold and unapologetic about where true life and salvation comes. He doesn't compromise. But it's never a question about his genuine care and concern. Jesus demonstrates for us how to set a place at his table. I think that's, at least for me, that's my takeaway today. How to set an open table. Because anyone who partakes of the water that Jesus offers and the bread of heaven that he freely gives is forever changed. They're forever marked. You and I have been forever changed. We've been marked. As you've gathered at this table, this literal table, but really just kind of the open table of Jesus, to be born again of spirit and of water, to partake and to taste and see that God is good. You have been changed. You've been marked. And I love this because in a very short span of time, we watch a dramatic transformation take place for this woman. We're gonna continue in our passage, picking up where we left off at verse 27. There's this little dialogue that happens about between Jesus and his disciples about food. That's a whole separate thing. So we're going to skip those couple of verses, but this will be on the screens. Just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? And why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jug beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything that I have ever done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming out from the village to see him. Skipping on to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many to hear his message and to believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard for, for ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. This unnamed outsider of a woman has become really the first evangelist sent out from the first uh, revival in history, right? And the ones who met Jesus based on her testimony, I love that what they said, we no longer believe just because of what you said. I think we feel like we've got to do all the work if we're the ones like kind of reaching out to our fans and friends and family and neighbors. Like it's all up to us. But this reveals that it's not about us. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing. We might get the conversation started, but we, we now believe because we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. I love this dramatic transformation. And this should remind us of many such moments in scripture where we see Jesus setting a table for people that we might not anticipate being welcome. And as a result of reaching to these outsiders, their friends and their family and their neighbors are all invited to come and to see that God is good. 
Just before Christmas, we were in Matthew 9. You'll remember this passage. It said, and as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. And follow me, he said. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. What did Matthew do as a result of coming to the invitation? He filled his table. He filled his table with those who most needed to hear this message of love and mercy. This woman begins the story as an outsider, begins as someone to whom really is probably antagonistic towards this idea. But during her conversation with Jesus, she becomes an unashamed witness of his love and mercy. From her status as a beginner in faith, she becomes an apostle sent by Jesus to testify of himself and his kingdom. And I think we need to call attention to her gender. Happy International Women's Day this last week, by the way. Folks, it's good news, and we should be proud that the Holy Spirit is no respecter of age, gender, class, or race. The Holy Spirit anoints and positions all who would say yes as leaders in the kingdom, evangelists, pastors, teachers, leaders. The church that we are a part of, the Church of the Nazarene, has a long history from its very beginning of recognizing that truth and affirming the ordination of women for the ministry of the kingdom. We can be proud of that. Surprisingly, it's very rare in churches, even still. We need to not forget, and we need to all work hard to make room at the table for diversity, the priesthood of all believers. From our story, our woman at the well is a model for other women, for people who feel like nobodies, for newcomers to the faith, for people with a blemished past. And I think it, though, it counts for all of us. And here is Jesus ready to encounter and welcome many into the household of faith, even at the least likely and maybe even the most inopportune times. So a couple of weeks ago, we concluded our sermon with a song that drove the point home. And I'd like to do that again today. I don't know if we'll make it a habit, but it just fit, it fits so good. And um, I feel like I need to f share a little bit of backstory on this particular song. About two years ago, I was on a work trip and was traveling, I was far from home, I was with a group of relative strangers, obviously a couple colleagues, but we were, hosting a couple people at, you know, kind of one of those big oversized steakhouses. It had been a long day of work. It was hot. And so I wanted to wash up before dinner. And I was in the restroom washing my hands. And the words of this song that we're about to hear started to kind of make their way into my mind. And it took a little bit because this song sits kind of way, way, way outside of my typical stylistic preferences. Um, 
But those words started kind of getting into my head and then into my heart. And then really into my heart. I mean, I think it was like a Texas, Texas roadhouse or something. And I'm in the bathroom, the men's bathroom, just weeping. I mean, it was like one of those moments. It doesn't happen. Oh, it's happening right now, but it doesn't always happen. I'm just weeping in this bathroom. And I'm expecting some guy to walk in, right? To this hot mess. Um, but I love this song because it beautifully depicts this idea, this open table of Jesus. I don't know if this is what the songwriters meant. I'd like to think it is. But these words describe for you and for me the table that Jesus invited you to and that you experienced, but now the table that he would like you to set for yourself. For those that you know, those that you may not know yet, your neighbors, those around you, let's hear this song and to taste and see that God is good. Good, right? Oh man. Yeah, I think I put that in the worship notes if you want to look it up. The high women, well, um, the encouragement for today, the encouragement today is may we, like Christ, learn to set an open table here in this church, but here also in our homes, our community, in those that we encounter. And you know what? Sometimes as followers of Christ, it's easy for our sphere of influence to begin to look a lot like us. <laughs> and I get that. And so sometimes it takes uh, some effort to even put ourselves at the well in the midday in a time and a place in which we might encounter someone else who needs to hear this love. Well, God, thank you for reaching into our hearts and challenging us, encouraging us. Thank you for the Samaritan woman to whom we very likely owe a debt of gratitude for our faith. Thank you for this story and this reminder that Lord, you've called us to, like you, to make room at the table for all who would come and taste and see that God is good. We love you. Amen.